So, last time I taught, I was in Luke chapter 1, and we ended at verse 56. So, tonight we will be in Luke chapter 1, verse 57, which is an awesome place to be because Christmas is coming. And soon we'll be in the Christmas message, which comes right after this. So, Luke chapter 1, verse 57. So tonight we'll be examining the birth of John the Baptist and everything that um, is involved in that and how amazing this story is and who John the Baptist is and, and what he meant to this whole plan of bringing Jesus into the earth, God incarnate. So we see um, there's kind of a pretext to this and we'll examine that. Uh, but starting in verse 57, it says, Now Elizabeth, Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered, and she brought forth a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. So, at the birth of John the Baptist, the thing that we see is rejoicing. And we see all of the neighbors and all of the family of John coming together and rejoicing over this child of promise. And if you want, you could turn with me back to chapter 1 in verse 13. We see this situation. And the situation is Zacharias, John's father, was in the temple serving in a very specific ministry, and it, it's the only time in his life that he was going to be able to do this specific ministry. And Zacharias is in the temple alone, and an angel appears to him, and it scares him. It frightens him. Very concerning to him. And I could imagine this warrior showing up beside you, shining, glimmering, all white, being something that might throw you off while you're in the temple. I mean, especially with all the stories uh, of, of men dying in the Holy of Holies, right? That's why they wore bells and tassels around the bottom side of their robes as they went into the Holy, uh, Holy of Holy. Because if they were to die, they would hear it and they would pull them out with a rope. Pretty intense. So you see this angel show up. It's probably a pretty freaky thing. So the angel says in verse 13, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. So, Zacharias, very old man. Elizabeth, very old woman. Both beyond the capability of having babies. And this angel saying to, to Zacharias, Hey, look, God is going to fulfill your request even though you're beyond your years. Verse 14, And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. So we see in, in verse 57 and 58, the very fulfillment of God's promise starting right off, that all of the neighbors and family of John are there rejoicing over the birth of this promised child. But notice one other thing in verse 58. It says, 
that God showed Elizabeth great mercy. Great mercy. And, and mercy is this uh, idea of compassion. To come beside, to, to, to feel for. And this is what they're rejoicing over. The mercy of God. And it's funny, as we look at this, we might go, well, what, what mercy did he really show? She's pregnant. She's old. She's going to suffer. Well, at the time, it was a big deal because if you didn't have children, you were, and, and you didn't have the capability of having children, you were outcast as a woman. You were seen as receiving the scorn of God, that you weren't worthy to carry children. What a different ideology than what we have in our culture today. Children have become a burden here in the United States. So they're saying God has shown her mercy because they have now received the blessing of children. And I can't tell you how much of a blessing children can be. And it's funny, as, as we grow older, as I grow older, I have four children now. I, I think that's all we're having. But I see these children grow and, and do things that may be hard for other adults to, to really be joyful about, be loud and, and destructive and running around and being crazy. But as I look at these children made in in God's image, being children, it makes me joyful. It makes me rejoice. Because I I see God's creation in these children. It's not something I meant to talk about, but it, it came up, I guess. So, John the Baptist, being born. The mercy of God being shown to his mother, Elizabeth. Verse 59. Chapter 1, verse 59. So it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. So we see the eighth day there, which is very significant. Um, Something that... uh, uh, Jewish culture would have followed strictly because it was given to them both in Genesis and Leviticus to circumcise on the eighth day. Uh, Genesis 17, 12 and Leviticus 12, 3. Um, and, And the importance of that in the Jewish culture was that this was a sign to be distinct and separated from all humanity on earth. This was something that was supposed to show that we have faith in God, so we are going to separate ourselves by the cutting of the flesh. It's something that, as Christians, we're called to do, not in a a physical way, but in a spiritual way. The cutting of the flesh. Our hearts are supposed to be circumcised. Right after birth, right after the the rebirth. It's something that, that should be uh, uh, significant in our lives, something that people should see, the cutting away of the old self. 
And here they're following the law. And if you remember, in earlier verses in chapter 1, it says that Zacharias and Elizabeth were perfect in the way that they lived after God. I don't think that means that they actually fulfilled the law, obviously. The, the Bible is very clear that we can't do that as men and women. But they were perfect as far as they did everything possible to follow after God with all that they had. So they're fulfilling the law. A really awesome thing about the eighth day as well is the number eight in biblical numerology is the day of, it's the number of new beginnings. So this is the new, the, the new life, so to say. And also, what's amazing about it is medically, the eighth day is the day to do this. Because you have two things happening in the, in the human body on the eighth day. You have vitamin K and a, and a chemical called prothrombin. Say that ten times fast. That is produced at over 100% on the eighth day. No other day does it do that but the eighth day. And it's funny, when, when Salem was born, um, they gave him an injection of vitamin K right after birth. And I was like, whoa, why did they do that? That's kind of crazy. And, and the nurse said, well, it helps with the production of prothombin, whatever that word is. And, and what happens is, is they're able to cauterize. Their, their blood actually coagulates. So if there's any nicks, cuts, or circumcision, he'll be able to heal the way that he's supposed to. So we see that in the eighth day. And, and we see God's perfect creation and perfect law coinciding with what we experience here on earth. So they followed this. The eighth day, they, were circum they circumcised him. And then it says that they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias, which was the common uh, practice of the Jews at the time, that you would either take the name of your father or your grandfather, and, and you'd carry on the family name. And the firstborn would always carry on the family name and always have the family inheritance because you had the family name. So this is the culture in which they live in, and this is what culture wanted to do to their family, was to continue in the way things have always been. And how often in our lives do we allow culture to affect the way we do things? By saying things like, well, I am Italian. Or I, I, I did grow up in Maine. Or for me, I always say, I am from California, right? I, I have this kind of goofy story to tell you guys. Um, so the first year that I was down here, I went to a conference with Will and Ross. And I believe Ken was there, but I don't, I don't remember exactly. But um, we went into Dunkin' Donuts. And we we're all getting coffees together, and I walked up to the counter, and, and uh, they said, go ahead and get your coffee. They were talking behind me, and, and I walked to the counter, and I said, uh, I'll take an um, iced chai latte. <laughs> and I, I turned around and saw these men standing behind me, and, and they were laughing me to scorn. And I felt about this big. This was like I said, about a year into living here. And I thought in my head, man, one day I will be as tough as some of these made men. Still doesn't happen. So 
Um, but the reality is, is we, we, we do this thing in our minds and in our, in our lives where we say, well, that's part of me because of my culture. That's something that's acceptable because it's part of my culture. What we see is people who are living for God are very often going against their very culture. I mean, if you look at the life of Jesus Christ, he was throwing things in the face of the Jewish culture. He was not at all acceptable in the culture that he he was raised up in. I was just listening to a pastor talk about how he he really established a youth uh, um, a youth upbringing. I don't youthful a bunch of young men came around him and started this movement. And that's what it was, this change of culture. And the question is, have you allowed this book right here, the Bible, to truly change your culture, to truly change the way that you do things? Growing up Italian, I'm Italian, uh, I've always heard that my family gets angry and and blows up and, and is very verbal because we're Italian and that's acceptable. And then I read in the word that it says don't let don't let don't let your your life be defined by wrath. Don't let your your life be defined by the the vulgarity that could come out of your mouth. So am I going to let my Italian culture supposed overcome me? Or is Christ going to overcome me? Because that's the real question. Does this really create change in your life? And we're going to see that this, um, this transpires in the life of Elizabeth, Zacharias, and John. So, Elizabeth says his name, verse 60. His mother answered and said, No, he shall be called John. And he goes from the name Zacharias, which means remembered of Jehovah, to John, which means Jehovah is is a gracious God, which is beautiful, right? And we go from this Old Testament thought of remembered by God, this, this idea that God is remembering his people, which isn't a bad thing. That's an amazing thing. But that's how the Jews lived their religious life, that God remembers us. We're his people to the to the present tense, from remembered in the past to the present, God is gracious. Now, what a beautiful picture that, that he's no longer going to be called by this thing in the past, but, but can be living in the graciousness of God today. And how often do we hear in our culture today, people say, well, you know, I was I was raised Christian. Yeah, I'm a Christian because I'm American, or or my grandfather was a pastor. This this idea of Christianity in the past. That's that's a false way of living. We're allowed to receive and experience God's graciousness every second of every day. It's something that that we have the capability of tapping into if we only accept and, and receive it. If we only seek it. His name will be John. Verse 61. But they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by this name. That is not what we do in our culture. How dare you do this weird thing? Verse 62. 
So they made signs to his father. So it would seem as though Zacharias at this point isn't just mute. He's probably deaf as well. They're making signs to him that he would have him, uh, what he would have him called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote saying, his name is John. His name is John. Which I'm sure he did as fast as he could. Because if you remember, when, when he questioned the angel about whether this sign was going to take, is this going to be real? How do I know if you're telling the truth? How do I know if you're an angel? The angel made him mute and it would seem deaf. And said that he would be mute and deaf until this was fulfilled. He was probably like, it's John, it's John, let me talk already. Let me talk. It continues in that verse right there by saying, so they all marveled. And this is really what we should be seeing in our lives. Because the reality is, is if we're living in the culture of Jesus Christ, if, if Jesus is defining the way that we do things in life, people should be marveling at what we're doing. People should be saying, why are you always so happy? You just got fired from your job. Why are you smiling? You just crashed your car. How are you laughing at this? We should be showing the joy of the Lord through every circumstance in life. And, and don't get me wrong, I don't want to, to like say we're supposed to be this weird fake, like, I don't have problems. That's not what we're talking about here. But the reality is, is the joy of the Lord should be shown in every action that we take and everything that we do. It should be something that crosses cultures. It should be something that confuses people and people should be marveling. The other day, I just had this big thing happen at work. Uh, yesterday, actually. And it was it was quite devastating what happened. I didn't get fired. But, um, thank God. <laughs> but something devastating happened at work. And I was very perturbed, very sad about it. And I guess it was showing all over my face. People saw it. Well, what's going on with James? He's never upset. He's never... <laughs> Got his lip out, walking around like a baby, you know? So a bunch of the nurses pulled me into the office and said, what is wrong with you? Are you okay? And I said, well, I'm sad about what happened. And they're like, well, are you are you going to leave? Or, or is this going to, like, destroy you? Is this?" And I said to them, look, the reality is, is I'm very sad about the, very, the, the circumstance, and I'll get over that really quick. But I have the joy of the Lord, and that's what drives me. That's the thing that, that guides me. And it actually gave me the opportunity to share the gospel with these girls, which was amazing. But all that said, it was, a, it, it was obvious what was going on inside of me. Does, does your life show the joy of the Lord, the culture of Jesus Christ? Does your life resemble that of what Christ has called us to be? That's a, that's a real question because it should be affecting us. It should be so real in our lives that it causes our actions and our conversation to, to, to be this beautiful thing to those who are willing to hear it. Again, 
there's going to be people that hate you just because you're a Christian and that happens. But the, the thing that's so beautiful, I mean, I, I can tell you right now, growing up outside of the church, I went to a public school. I hung out with, you know, there was thousands of, there was, my school is bigger than most of the cities in Maine. It's weird. But there was this small group of Christians, and they all hung out together. I say small, there was about 50 Christians that all hung out together in this tiny little spot. I call it the barn. And, and they were always happy. They were always joyful. They were always playing around, poking fun at each other. And they were so different. And we all wanted to hate them, but every time we hated them, they were nice to us. We couldn't do it. We tried. Most caring group of people. We should be that in our culture. And I could tell you, to me, being a non-believer at that time, that was still beautiful. It was still inviting. It was still like, man, I'm down. I'm going to go hang out at the barn today. I'm going to go hang out with the kids with the joy in their heart. Because I don't have it. That's what our, our lives should resemble to people. So John says, no, 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 no. Don't name him after me. His name's John. They all marveled. Verse 64. Immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he spoke, praising God. Now imagine this. Ten months. Ten months ago, the Lord made your mouth shut and will not open. And it would seem you cannot hear. When your mouth is finally opened and your ears are open, I could tell you that there's part of me that would say, I would probably not be praising God. I'd be upset. Why has my mouth been shut this whole time? No, the Holy Spirit is upon Zacharias. And we're going to see here soon that Zacharias actually gives this prophetic message about John and about Jesus. But John is praising God. Now think about this. That is a, a true test of Zacharias. That's a trial to be quieted, to be shut up, to be deafened. And what comes out of his mouth when the trial is over is the praises of, of God. Now my question is, when we go through trials and tribulations and struggles, what's coming out of our mouth? Because the reality is, is when, when you squeeze something hard enough, what's inside of it comes out. My daughters and my sons, they, they eat these things called squeezy pouches. And the ones they like have banana and zucchini. They smell horrible, but my kids love to eat them. But sometimes, my youngest one, if we hand it to her, they disappear. I don't know where they go. Until one of my other children step on it on the carpet. And when they squeeze it, all of the things inside of it come all out. And when it's on the carpet... It makes a mess. Now think about it in, in, in these terms. When you're squeezed, when you're pressed, what comes out? Because that's the real you. That's hard to deal with. Because sometimes what comes out isn't pretty. 
Sometimes it needs to be cleaned with, with resolve. Because <laughs> it could stink. So you have this, this thing happen to Zacharias. His tongue is finally loosed. He speaks and he praises God. He's praising God for the mercy that's shown to his wife. He's praising God for the graciousness that he's shown his family. He's praising God probably because he could speak as well. Verse 65. Then fear came on all who dwelt around them. And all these sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea. A little bit to talk about in regard to that. Zacharias and Elizabeth's interaction with God created a response from the people around him. Think about it. Yeah, it's fear here, which is fine, because obviously that was God's will and plan for this situation. But how is our relationship with Jesus Christ making those around us act or react? Or is there a response to it at all? Because the reality is, is very often, our relationship with Jesus Christ is so quiet that no one even knows it's happening. There's no one even to hear it. When the reality is, is what should be happening is, it should be causing a response. And everyone around us, sometimes it'll be fear, sometimes it'll be conviction, sometimes it'll be condemnation, sometimes it'll be hatred. Regardless of what the reaction is, is our relationship with Christ causing a reaction? It should. And it should be obvious. It should be very obvious. And, and by the way, I'm not saying, does your personality cause fear, your personality cause conviction, condemnation? I, I don't care about that. Your personality is irrelevant what should be showing is Jesus Christ in your life. The joy of the relationship that comes between you and God. Really, it's love. As we examine Scripture, the thing that every Christian should be showing is love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Because everything else, no matter what you do, in the name of Jesus, if it's not coupled with love, it's worthless. It's junk. So is, is the, the love and the joy of Christ causing a reaction, an action from everyone else around you? Or is your, your relationship so quiet that no one even knows that it's going on? Um, one of my friends, my, my pastor in California, tells this story about how he worked in construction and he was a project manager and and he's driving this company truck all around, and um, one of his guys didn't have a ride. I suspect probably because of a DUI or something like that. So he went to go pick him up, and he pulled into the guy's driveway, and the guy got in the car, and Clark went to grab the stuff on his seat and move it, and the guy grabbed his Bible and tossed it over and said, Wow, I didn't realize you were a Christian. And that's the day that Clark realized... People don't know that I'm a Christian. That's horrible. That's a scary thought. And he says that's when his ministry started because he couldn't keep his mouth shut about Jesus after that. 
Sometimes it's the conviction of people not knowing that you're a Christian, or maybe you not open your mouth and someone convicting you, whether it be a believer or non-believer. Maybe that's what it takes for you to actually start telling people, look, I live for Jesus. That's what I'm here for. So they all, they all marveled. Zacharias, Zacharias praised God, and they all feared. They were all scared. They didn't understand. Verse 66, And all those who heard them kept them in their hearts, saying, What kind of child will this be? What kind of child will this be? What's going to happen with this kid? What's this all about? Turn with me to Matthew 11. Matthew 11, starting in verse 11. It's not so much about the child, it's about the man. What kind of man is this going to be? All this craziness going on. Matthew 11, 11 says, Assuredly, I say to you, Jesus speaking, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What kind of, what manner of child is this going to be? This is going to be the greatest man to live, the greatest Old Testament, Old Testament prophet to live ever. That's what manner of child this is going to be. Continue in verse 12. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by, by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Who is this? What manner of child is this going to be? This is the Elijah to come. This is the forerunner of the Messiah. This is the last Old Testament prophet. That's what manner of child that, that this is going to be. This is why culture is shifting so much. Because he's here to proclaim Jesus Christ. To proclaim the new covenant. The new blood sacrifice. That's who this child is. Back to Luke chapter 1. What kind of child will this be? Continuing there in verse 66. And the hand of the Lord was with him. What a beautiful statement. I, that, if anything's written about me, I want it to be that. And the hand of the Lord was with him. It's funny, when you examine that word hand there, it's very often, uh, uh, it very often coincides with the word strength. The strength of the Lord was with him. And as you see the ministry of John the Baptist, it is in the strength of the Lord. It's something that's backed up by the power of God. And what, what we see often in the church today is a bunch of men and women scrambling around, doing things in their own power, in their own strength, and by their own hands. It's funny, I, I think it was C.S. Lewis 
might have been one of the other guys, not sure, that said, if you took the Holy Spirit out of the early church, 90% of what was done would, would have stopped. If you take the Holy Spirit out of the church today, 90% of what is done would continue. That's a scary thought. Again, that's not scriptural. That's, that's a man's idea, a thought. But think about that. How often are we doing things in our own strength, in our own power? How often are we doing things even in the name of Jesus by our own thoughts and our own ideas? That's a scary thing to think about. Especially because there's going to be a day when we all stand in front of the judge in judgment. As Christians, we'll be judged. But our judgment will be, what does our, what does our work look like? What weight is it? Is it wood, hay, and stubble? Is it junk that's going to burn up? Or is it gold, silver, and precious stones? The things that's produced by God through our lives. Is it by the hand of God? Or is it by our own hand? It's something we really need to question. It's something we really need to ask ourselves. Am I really doing this by the power of God? Is this really something that God wants me involved in? Or doing? Or saying? Or is, Are these people really people that, that God wants me around? I was once told by someone that they like going to bars so that they could tell the people in the bar about Jesus. I didn't know what to say. At first, I was kind of dumped out and my mouth dried up. and I, um, Weird. So what I had to say to that person was, do you really think drunk people want to hear your message? Do you really think they're hearing a word you say? And the person told me, well, they like to argue with me. And I said, yeah, they would. That tells me you probably shouldn't be there around a bunch of intoxicated people who want nothing to do with the message. But it's, it's my ministry. No, no, it's your hand. Do you have the right heart? Maybe, unless you're in there drinking with them. Do you have the right heart? Yeah, probably. Sure. Does it mean that it's right? No. And then I heard the famous saying, well, Jesus hung out with sinners. And I said, yeah. He said, hey, sinner, come and listen to me teach. Hey, sinner, come and spend time in my place where I'm going to be so I could show you the truth. Hey, sinner, I'm coming to your house, but you're talking about God coming to, to, Zachariah, to, to Zacchaeus' house. We're, we're doing things very often by our own hand. What we need to be showing is the hand of the Lord behind us, the strength of God and the power of the Holy Spirit in the things that we do. That only comes by relying on the Holy Spirit and Him alone. Verse 67. Now his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel. The word blessed there is celebrated. It's, it's uh, uh, 
to eulogize. That's a pretty awesome thing. You think about a eulogy, right, at a, at a funeral to celebrate someone's life. Celebrated is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Guys, this man's mouth and ears were just shut. They were, he was just on, on mouth lock for 10 months. This is the blessing that pours forth from Zacharias' mouth. God has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. I'm blessed because God has sent a Redeemer. Think about this. Think about how counterculture this is. What he's saying is, God is going to come in man's form and redeem us. That was not the thought of the Jews at the time. The thought of the Jews at the time was God was going to send a, a political leader to come and rescue them from whoever their oppressor was. Rome at the time. And guess what? That's the same thought that they have today. You hear men, all kinds of different rabbis talking about how there's going to be a Savior that comes and He's going to come and redeem Israel from all of its oppressors, Hamas and Islam, really, I think is what it is now. And, and, and reestablish the temple on the temple now. Scary thought. Because according to Scripture, the man that's going to come and establish that temple on the Temple Mount is not going to be their Messiah. And he will be a political leader. He'll be a world leader. He'll be the Antichrist. This is so counterculture because this is not what was expected by all the people. The, the one that was going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah was going to usher in the political leader. Instead, what's coming is the suffering servant, the horn of God. Verse 72, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers. What mercy? What mercy? If they're, if they're talking about from the idea of a political leader, what mercy is being spoken about? He's supposed to come and give justice. He's, spo he's supposed to come and be the destroyer of everyone that opposes. What mercy? The mercy is to those who would believe on the Savior, on the Messiah. Those who deserve death. Those who deserve spiritual death for all of eternity would receive the mercy of God. The, the word mercy is simply not receiving the penalty that you deserve. That he's going to show mercy that he promised our fathers. Zacharias is saying, hey, look, 
I see it in the Old Testament. God's coming in man form to give us mercy, to die for us. And to remember his holy covenant. Verse 73, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. So this is the, this is the, the crux, I believe, of this prophecy here. What does the mercy of God in your life produce? What does it produce? Because all of us say, Jesus my Savior. Jesus my Deliverer. And, and by the way, that's awesome. Do that. Continue to believe that. But what does that produce in your life? Because here, he's saying, the, the fact that we have the mercy of God given to us through Jesus Christ should cause us to serve. To serve without fear. To serve who? To serve God. What does serving God look like? Serving one another. Taking care of each other's needs. Caring about each other's ideas, thoughts, emotions. Correcting one another. Going through life with one another. Being bound together as a family. It should cause us to serve Him without fear. How? Verse 75, In holiness and righteousness before Him all the days of our life. How should we be serving Him? In holiness and righteousness. James, I, I don't know if I could serve and be holy and righteous. You can't. You're right. It's impossible for you to do it in your own power and strength. You need it to be by the hand of God. Sorry, I'm all Italian right now with my hands. Just kidding. It needs to be by the hand of God. We cannot produce this, this serv servant mentality with righteousness and holiness without the power of God behind us, without the Holy Spirit doing it inside of us. It's got to change our heart. The Holy Spirit's got to change our hearts before any of this could happen. Now the litmus test, the question is, has the Holy Spirit changed my heart? Do I really want to serve in righteousness and holiness? Or do I just care about what I'm getting? What I'm receiving? I was listening to a pastor talk about churches in China, and he was talking about how churches work here in America and how people leave churches because of goofy things like the worship or the lighting or how the church looks or maybe even how the pastor's tone of voice comes off. And, and the, the church in China would snicker and laugh at these things. Because they're saying, how do you leave a church? <laughs> what does that even look like? I mean, we, we leave the church. There, there's nowhere else to go. We gave up everything to come here. I've, I've made this my home. I've made this my family. This is everything I have. 
They come to serve one another, to care about one another. The church should should resemble the church of, of the book of Acts that came together and took care of each other's needs and, and really cared about one another. Do we do that? Or do we come to be served? You know, it's funny, when we read the book of 1 Corinthians, it talks about not coming to the table to be served, to literally come already fed, to eat at home. Don't, don't come here to be served. Come here to serve one another. Come here to take care of one another, to care about one another. As we look at the church, what do we see? And, and I just, I got to be real, being from California, I've seen a lot of big, big churches with a pastor and everyone cheering the pastor on. Go, go, go. You're doing great, pastor. Good job. Look, oh, man, look at the fruit in his life. We got the greatest pastor in the world. But as I examine the big church, the one that I got saved in, which is a lot better now, I see no fruit. I played football for about 14 years. And, and playing football, you have cheerleaders and you have the crowd, right? And, and the cheerleaders in the crowd are constantly telling you what to do on the field. Go, defense, de you know, all these different things. You even have parents. I remember in high school we had a dad get out of the crowd, jump the fence and get in our coach's face and want to fight him. <laughs> and and they, they were all telling the players what to do, but they weren't on the field. So they weren't experiencing what was really happening in the game. Well, you should have done this. Well, if I did that, I would have got clobbered. I, what are you talking about? We're all called to be in the game. We're all called to serve one another. We're all called to serve God. Verse 76. And you child will be called the prophet of the highest for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his way. You will go to prepare his way. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew 3 verse 1. Matthew 3, 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Verse 4. Now John himself was clothed in camel hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Disgusting diet. Then, Jerus uh, then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to uh, his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, 
who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And then verse 13 says, Then Jesus. So what happened? John the Baptist came and he ushered in the Messiah through the message of repentance. Repent, 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 repent. Is, is that word an evil word? Is that idea an evil idea? No. Repentance is something that we're called to proclaim. To stop doing what you're doing and to turn the other way. That's what the word means. It's like a U-turn on the freeway. Highway, sorry. I almost said it. California. Here in Maine, as you go up the highway, you see these little turnouts, right? That's where the cops hang out. It's where, like the cop turnouts. And I always think about it like, if I were to repent through that, I'd be coming off of the highway making this you and coming back onto the highway the opposite way. Then I'd probably get pulled over because you're not supposed to go on those things. But that is the idea of repent. But repentance isn't enough. Understand that. Because there's a lot of people in this world that are out proclaiming the message of repent, but they're nixing the message of Jesus. Because the reality is, is repentance without Jesus is no different than non-repentance. Changing, getting off of drugs, getting, getting away from idolatry or sexual morality, whatever the sin is that your, your life is overwhelmed with, is no different if you do not add Jesus unto yourself. It's a, wor it's a worthless message. In fact, it's a very sad and disturbing message. Stop doing drugs. Why? I don't know. Okay, no. <laughs> It's funny, I, um, I've talked to a lot of guys going through programs uh, like Arise and CRD, which are amazing, by the way. And they asked me, James, what program did you go through? And I said, I got saved. I, I, did go I wish I went through a program because that would have helped me in my early stages of Christianity. But I, I met Jesus, and he changed my life. He changed my heart. I, had, I didn't desire the things that I used to. You know, the reality is, is, is repentance without Jesus is useless. It's worthless. It's, it's sad. He's, he's proclaiming the message of repentance, but he's also ushering in the Messiah. He's preparing the way of the Lord. Verse 77 of Luke chapter 1 
says to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remissions of their sins through the tender mercy of our God. That is the message of hope, the message of peace that we need to be bringing to people. Look, I know you got struggles. I know you got these problems. The reality is, is you got this hole in your heart, and and it it needs to be filled. And you've been trying to fill it with all of this stuff, you name it, gambling, food, whatever, love supposedly, sex, pornography, drugs, alcohol relationships, friendships. You're, you're just constantly shoving things in the hole and it never fits. It's kind of funny. Uh, the, the picture that, that comes to my mind now, now that I've had children, is those little balls with all the shapes in it. And you got all these different little shape blocks that you're supposed to put in the holes and the circle is supposed to go to the circle and triangle and the triangle and the star and the star. And I remember Salem, when he was really young, he took that ball and he was trying to stick the star in the circle. wouldn't fit. And then you take the triangle and try to stick it in the circle. It'd go in, but it wouldn't quite go all the way. It wasn't quite until he found the circle that it fit right in. That's the picture that comes to my mind when, when I think about the message that we're supposed to be proclaiming to people. You guys have this hole, and it needs to be filled with Jesus, and, and you keep putting other stuff in it. It doesn't fit. It doesn't work. You're not fulfilled. Verse 78, through his tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us. Wow. The day spring from on high. The idea of day spring is the rising light from on high. Jesus, our rising light from on high, has visited us. The, Christi- the, the Christmas message. I just think about that star that went over the land and, and hovered right above Jesus, right? The light. That same light that we're called to be. The light on the hill. The light of life. We're called to be that. Jesus has called us to be that. He's obviously it, but we're called to be that. We're supposed to be that continuing of his ministry. In Acts chapter 1, it says that he he started to teach and to do in the book of Acts. But he's continuing through the church today. His works and his teaching are supposed to be continued through today. Is your life resembling that? The day spring from on high has visited us. God has visited us. Zacharias gets it. This is a priest in the temple. This is a Levite. And he's saying, no, I understand. God is coming to visit us. Verse 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. You all looking for peace? You're looking for that that calming peace, the thing that, that could finally stop your mind from stirring? It's that day spring that you need. It's Jesus Christ. He's the one that gives you peace. How? He guides our feet into the way. 
We need to be led by him through his word and our relationship with him. That's what will cause that peace that surpasses understanding. That joy that I was talking about earlier, the one where you just got in a car accident. Why are you smiling? That comes from that peace right there. Why? How could you still be happy? You're going through all these hardships in life. That peace right there. The way. Verse 80. So the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the desert till the day of his manifestation to Israel. So God took him away and put him in the desert. Man, that sounds like a lot of our lives. God taking us away and putting us in a desert for a while until it's time to be used. You ever think about life that way? Like, God, why am I struggling like this? You're in the desert. (laughs) Relax. Your day will come when the Lord uses you in a mighty way. Why why do I have this hardship? Why, Why am I going through this struggle? Just relax. Your day is coming. Continue to trust in him. We see that in Paul the Apostle's life as well, right? He's pulled to the desert. We see that in many of uh, we saw that in Jesus' life. Forty days in the desert. He had no food and no water. Whew. Can't even imagine. But he was pulled to the desert to grow in his relationship with God. The struggle, the suffering, the desert life made him cling to God. And do we think about our lives that way? Like when we're praying, Lord, take this this hardship, this struggle away from me. Are we thinking, wow, I'm really having to spend a lot of time with God right now because I, I can't do this on my own. When, when me and my wife were in Israel um, a couple years ago now, we went to Qumran. And Qumran is, is in nearby the Dead Sea. It's out in the desert, the dirty desert. And it's where they found all of the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, right? You have the Dead Sea Scroll Museum, and um, there's actually a lot of thought now that the group of men, it's not just men, men and women and children now, that were at the place at Qumran were not a scene. That's a strange thing, because I was always taught that. That's what I was always... But when we were there, they were talking about how the Asian people did not have wives, and they definitely did not have children. And they're finding toys and jewelry all over the place. So they're saying there probably weren't a seeing people. So then it's like, well, who were these people? There's many who believe that they were followers of John the Baptist. It's pretty intense to think about. And if you read the writings of the people at Qumran, there were some differences, but most of their writings aligned with what John the Baptist was saying. In fact, even quoting Isaiah, the same exact verse that, that John the Baptist quoted, that was said about him, ushering in the Messiah. Pretty intense. What was he doing out there this whole, that whole time? He was establishing a relationship with God. Getting ready to be the prophet that ushered in the Messiah. So maybe you're in a hard time right now. Maybe you're in a hardship. Maybe you're in your desert, so to say. Are you allowing the Lord 
to establish that relationship. To build you up, to grow you, so that when his calling comes, you're ready. Because the reality is, is that day will come. Your calling will happen. Scripture says that he foreordains our work. It's coming. The question is, are you going to be ready? Are you going to have an answer for why you believe what you believe? Is your testimony going to coincide with the message of Jesus Christ? Or are you going to live for yourself and be a, a different testimony? Amen? That's what I got for you. Let's pray. Let's hang out. Spend time together in fellowship. Fellowship as long as you want. Let's pray. Father God, we just uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness, for coming through with your promises. Father, for your fulfillment of, of Scripture. Father, we thank you for, for growing us and teaching us and walking through life with us and, and directing our path. Father, I ask that you do give us a heart and a mind to be servants of you and of your people. Direct us, Father. Allow us to cling to your spirit, to be filled, to be showing your works, to not grow weary in our own work, but, but to be carried on wings of eagles, Father, to, to be fully empowered by you. Bless our church. Bless all of us, Father. I ask that again, please watch over a night at Bethlehem. We ask that you bless the community by it. We thank you so much for your love, for calling us your children, for giving us a chance to believe. We love you so much, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.